0: So now I know that everybody's been hating me all weekend after the exam, I so. <laughs> okay. It, w- it was a lot, it apparently was a lot harder than I thought it was. So I didn't try to make it that hard. The average was only about a 30, which would be average about 60%, which isn't, isn't where I want it to be. I'd like it to be a lot higher than that. I don't need the average to be an 80 or 90%, although I'd love to see that one time. But. What, what, what was it, the amount of material? I know you talked about, was it there was so much because, was it because of those five chapters or the other? Did that, that throw? Okay. as hard, it was just the, for the combined chapters. Okay. I, I had do chapter and I'm going to try to find a different way to do Maybe I'll just do that as a separate test by itself or a separate mini quiz or something to mm-hmm. emphasize that. Maybe that's the difficulty. So what I was going to do that I don't normally do is give you a chance to redo. The exam. So normally I don't say go back and redo it, but if you would like to go back and give me the correct answers. Now that doesn't mean, that's not, that's not easy on the true-false, where you change a true-to-false, a you got to tell me why. You got to write a sentence and tell me why, or the multiple choice, or the fill-in. So tell me why it's the right answer in a sentence. Obviously the essays you can re- probably just rewrite and I've made some comments on them. Sometimes I just said no that's not correct and sometimes I may have said think about this. But if you want to do that I'll give you back, I'll, go half, I'll give you half back. So if you missed 20 points on it, you can get 10 back. So, I don't. no guarantee that happens on the next exam. I'm just giving you one on this exam. I didn't do it on the last one. I didn't do it for the other class. So if they're listening to this, they'll be all upset with me. But they probably don't listen to the 104 class anyway. So as long as I don't put it in the wrong spot. But their average came out a lot better. So maybe it was just the fact that you guys had everything all so condensed in there. But I do need them back by. Really love to have them on Friday, but I'll give you till Monday for the weekend, so that I can. You know, if you can get them back Friday, because I need to turn in midterm grades, and I'm not sure when the deadline is. And if I do turn them in earlier, then your grade would be skewed a little bit low. So it might make, you know, it might make an A a B or a B a C right now. But that, the midterm grade doesn't. It's for your information. It doesn't. It's not attached to your permanent record or something that goes to another college that says that person had an F at midterm, but they got a B in the class. So you only see the final grade. So if you can get them in Friday, that's great. I got to have them by Monday so I can get it in, though. So if you want to go ahead and do that, but again, just changing the answer from a D to a B is not going to get you the credit. Give me a sentence, and I'll give you up to half. I mean, it's, I'm going to reread it. I'm going to look at them. If you give me the right, if you give me the wrong explanation, you might only get a quarter point or something, you know. But I'll give you up to half back. I would probably rather have you do it on a separate sheet. You know, either type it into a separate sheet and, atta- and just attach it. Give me the whole thing back though when you do it, so I have your original and I have that, and then I'll go through and adjust those. So I will make the grades visible after today, so you can. They're in the grade book. I have them recorded, but then I'll update them as I get those as I get those in. But again, no guarantee that I do that on the next exam. You know, it de- depends on. Now everybody will do bad on the next exam, so they. Of course, doing bad on it so you can get a, you know, everybody gets a zero so we can all get a twenty-five doesn't really do much good in the long run. So but it was apparently a lot harder. I mean, I'd rather have the average be about seven or eight points higher than that. Mid-70s is good. Because if the exams average a mid-70, I find that people tend to get, you know, people who are, some people who get 70s on the exams are still pulling A's in the class because I give you a lot of other options to do points. And I have people who've gotten, you know, forty and fifty percent on the exams you know really just can't do all you get but turn in all the homeworks turn in all the assignments and end up with a B. So it's 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 very doable. It's not like the not like some classes where you get three exams and you're stuck. So would be easy for me boy much less grading if I only had to grade exams, but I think it's the better way to do it for everyone. So Okay, so make sure you have that in I'll remind you on Friday, but make sure I get them in Monday. And I don't know, unless you're going to scan them back into me, you'll probably have them in by class Monday or drop them off to my office Monday afternoon. <coughs> so unless you're going to take it home and do it Monday night and scan it all in and send me the scans, which is acceptable, I mean I'll take that as long as I have the original and your answers. So. So, but that is why, is for those who didn't come in earlier, why I didn't put the grades up in the grade book. That's why I didn't release them. I didn't want to ruin your break and put them up on, you know, Saturday afternoon and have you, you know, here. At least I can tell you right away what you can do. So, hopefully, that ha- did not ruin your, ruin your weekend like mine was ruined. <laughs> As I said, the others we had, we went to Washington D.C. on Saturday, and on the way back, my sister was follow was was, was leading us actually, and her transmission went out and the car is shot apparently it's like a it's a Honda. It's like a $4000 transmission and it's you know the car may be worth twice that but she, it's not really worth putting 4000 so she's looking for a new car right now. Did you also get evacuated at the air space museum? No, actually I didn't really read about that till the next day. <laughs> I didn't read about that till the next day. We were over at the Smithsonian itself. So we weren't actually at the but I did read about the air and I think we I, I think we were sitting on the mall eating at the time. We were having a picnic on the mall. It was not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I read about it the next day but I did not actually get there. They cleared the whole building then or Yep. Okay. Wow. That would be amazing considering how busy the Smithsonian was. You could barely get to anything. Oh yeah, there was a lot of panic and it was great yeah. when they were arresting the people and bringing them through the scared tourists. <laughs> oh jeez. Nice. Okay. All right. Okay. Picture of the day for the day. What is it? Oops, I put it up there again. I thought I hit it and I didn't. Any ideas? What's it a picture of? Venus? Uranus. Uranus. No, looks like it though from the picture. Actually it's Saturn on its side. Good try though. Uranus does look like, Uranus actually points like that. But Saturn, it's actually just taken on the side. And this is actually taken from the Cassini spacecraft that is orbiting Saturn. It's been there since 2004 and will continue there probably for another half dozen years. I think it's got like six, seven more years on its lifespan. So, and NASA's done pretty good with a lot of these. They've actually lasted a lot longer than expected. I mean, Hubble Space Telescope has already exceeded its initial expectations as to how long it was supposed to last. But what you're seeing here, here's the rings. So the rings are pointing almost straight up and down in this picture. And one of the ideas there is to look at how thin they are. And theirs turned at a slight angle. If you look at them almost edge on, they're essentially invisible. The rings of Saturn, again we talked about them a little bit in that monster set of chapters, are very, very thin. If you look at them edge on, that was one of Galileo's problems. He looked at them edge on sometimes, and sometimes not, depending on the time of the year for Saturn. So sometimes he'd see no rings, and then five years later, he'd see these two blobs. He couldn't quite resolve them into rings. But that's actually how thin they are. They are incredibly, they're they're paper thin to the scale. Now, they're not like a sheet of paper around Saturn. If you went to Saturn, they would actually have a good thickness to them. But relative to the size of Saturn, You know, It's like a piece of paper around a basketball. They're that. They're incredibly thin. They're very, very flat. So when we look at them straight on, straight on the edge, you don't really see them. They just go straight through. All All the decorations you're seeing on Saturn here aren't part of the surface. All this, that's not the bands and structures. We looked at some of that on Jupiter where Jupiter had some bands and where Saturn had some bands. That's actually the shadow of the rings. So the Sun coming from from one direction down and casting shadows on of the rings onto the planet's surface. You can see here is one of the big thick, denser rings, but you can see all these little rings too. So you're actually seeing a lot of the structure. So the rings aren't like I said, a, compared it to a piece of paper, but they're not. There are lot, a lot of little tiny rings. So there are all sorts of millions of little rings that make them, make up the big rings of Saturn. And there's all sorts of detail and structure to them that we're just beginning to learn about and understand. You know, we knew there were a couple big rings. But within the rings, each of those, there's millions of particles within each of these rings, little tiny ice particles that make them up. And the more there are, the denser it's going to be. So the big dense areas where there's lots of particles block out a lot of the sunlight. Some areas where there's fewer particles block out a lot less. So you're getting an idea of the structure of the rings from from the planet there. Questions, questions. No questions, no questions. OK. Let's go ahead on to, and this is where I ended, right? Because I said I, I, wrote in, I wrote in I ended on the next slide. But I think this is, I didn't do this, did I? I didn't talk about Barnard Star. I didn't think I did. OK. I didn't think I did, but I thought I'd better double check, view, slideshow. Mm-hmm. I told myself I started from there, but I, did, I didn't think I did. OK. So. These were the closest stars to the sun. And again, there aren't that, there's only a handful of them that are relatively close to the sun. These are the 30 closest stars and you're still talking about 10 light years away. One, two, three parsecs, there's nothing within one parsec of the sun, three light years. So you can, you know, light that left the sun three years ago four years ago, has been traveling through space for four years at the speed of light, still hasn't reached the nearest star. So, it's still going. The light for these other ones is still ten years ago. So nothing is very close to the sun. And that's not necessarily that unusual. Some stars come in groups and clusters. Some stars are all by themselves too. There's not a lot of stars near some of these others as well. So, It's very, very empty. Space is very, very empty. Now, Barnard's star is the fastest moving star in the sky. And it still doesn't move that, it still doesn't move that fast. The stars are moving through space, so if we watch them on the sky over long, long periods of time, they will slowly move relative to each other. Because they're moving through space like our sun is, and they're traveling around the center of the galaxy. So they're moving. Now if you can see the star there, you can see most of this stays the same, right? Here's this star, this star, these three in a pattern. And here's this star here, and it's there. So it moved. Those pictures are 22 years apart. So It didn't move very much. I mean that's, and that's not a view of this. that's not like taken with a camera. I mean it's taken with a camera on a telescope. So you're looking at something about the size of the full moon, so this full moon would just fit in that box. So if you put the full moon in that box, that's how much the fastest moving star moves. So very, very slowly on our on our time scales. But of course, if you could watch them over millions of years, they'd be traveling around as well, sort of like the planets were seen to travel through the stars. But that is the that's the fastest that's the fastest moving star in the sky, and it's Bar- Barnard's star. It's not a very bright one. It's one of the closest stars, too. If we went back to the previous slide, it's one of those ones in here. There's Barnard's star right there. So it's actually one of the very closest stars to us, too. Which is why it appear, one of the reasons it appears to move so fast. Closer things to you, if you're in the car, right, what's right by the rails and poles right by the car move, appear to move very, very quickly, whereas things way off in the distance don't look like they're moving as fast. Same thing with the stars. The stars that look that are the closest to us are going to look like they move faster. Alpha Centauri, that's the nearest star to us. And its motion is shown here. It's about a little over a parsec away, about a little over four light years. And it's moving through space in some direction. And we see that in two components. You divide it into two parts. And this is how we actually will measure it. You can't measure how a star is moving through space. You can't just see it. We can watch it move across the surface of the celestial sphere, and we can measure if it's moving towards us or away from us. But we can't just get this directly. We have to look at those two components. Radial component is very easy, right? Doppler shift. So we can look at the Doppler shift. We can see how fast it's moving. We can look at whether the lines from the star are shifted to the red, shifted to the blue, and we can tell you exactly how fast it's moving towards or away from us. That's a real easy one to get what we call the transverse velocity, and that's what we're seeing here, is how fast is it really moving on, is it moving across our line of sight? So you have to be able to figure that out too. That you've got to be able to measure what we call the proper motion. Proper motion is what it appears to move on the surface of the, sky, of this, of the celestial sphere. So it's how fast it appears to move. So those are two components that we measure if you measure If you can measure this one, which you can for some stars, if they're nearby and if they're moving quick enough. For many distant stars, you can't measure. It's too small to measure. But radial velocity, we can measure for any. Radial velocity, we can determine for distant galaxies. That's the nice, easy one. All you got to do is measure the shift of the spectral lines. Okay, luminosity and brightness. And coming up, magnitudes. That's the fun one. Luminosity is what we call an absolute brightness. Means it's how much energy the star is really putting out. So how much energy it is actually giving off. That is not necessarily what it looks like uh, from us. And that's what we call the apparent brightness. Apparent brightness depends on where you're observing from. So for us, it's observing from the Earth. And it depends, they're related. But they depend on the distance. Distance, So the sun is incredibly bright, right? Nice and bright keeps us nice and warm and keeps us lit up. But if you took the sun and put it at a distance away, put it further away from the Earth, if you put it out to the distance of Alpha Centauri, it would be a relatively bright star in the sky but it wouldn't be anything amazing. It would be one of the brighter stars in the sky, likely, but it wouldn't be anything amazing. If you took the sun and took it about 30 light years away, now 30, remember we're talking about the nearest stars or 10, about 10, and about 10 light years. If you're going about 30 light years away, it would be one of the fainter stars in the sky. Visible to the naked eye, but, but barely. So you wouldn't really be able to see, the sun would be nothing amazing if it's only 30 light years away. Now 30 light years sounds like a big distance, but when we start talking about the stars in the galaxy and within the galaxies, that's very, very small. That's an incredibly small distance. There are stars in Orion that look real bright, right? Well, they're not that close to us. They're actually hundreds of light years away. So putting the Sun at 30 light years would be barely visible. These stars at hundreds of light years are easily visible, some of the brightest stars in our sky, is telling us that they are extremely bright. You know, if you took Betelgeuse or Rigel and put it in the center of the solar system, the earth would, have, would be boiled away. Bless you. It would be so hot and so bright, you know, there, would no, there would be no life on earth because it's emitting so much more energy. So there's two, there are two different things we're looking at. We're looking at luminosity or the absolute brightness. That's how much energy the star is really emitting. So in order to compare those, you really have to know the distance. I can't just look out at the sky and tell you which stars are really bright, really emitting a lot of energy, and which ones are only bright because they happen to be close to us. Apparent brightness is only what we see from Earth. And again, the equation down here is just showing you the relationship, that the apparent brightness depends on the luminosity and the distance. So, and the square of the distance. So if you take things further away they're going to get a lot fainter really quick. So in order to see these very distant objects that means this luminosity has to be something that makes our Sun look like it's, you know, little tiny light bulb in comparison to a big giant spotlight. Now this is just showing the inverse square law which shows how things get fainter and why things get fainter as you look further and further away. If you look, for example, at the distance of the Earth, say one astronomical unit, you have a certain amount of sun's energy coming through a square, some, a square meter, a square foot, whatever you want to use there. You have some amount of energy coming in, coming through that. If you go out twice as far, so if you go out to two astronomical units, then that same amount of energy is now spread over four units. Four squares of the same size. So you're getting less energy in each unit at that distance. If you go three astronomical units away, that same energy that was going through one square meter at the Earth is now going through nine square meters. So this idea of the inverse square law as to how things are getting less and less energy as you go further and further out, they're getting spread out. So that amount of energy that was going through this little bit was going through this bit and this. And then at four astronomical units, it would be 16. At five, it would be 25. So at the distance of Jupiter compared to the Earth, what was going through one square meter at the Earth, the amount of energy we get on each square meter, it's getting one twenty fifth that amount. So Jupiter is getting a lot less energy from the sun, and it goes down drastically. It's not getting one fifth, it's getting one twenty fifth. It goes down very drastically. Okay. So here's the example I was sort of giving you. We have two stars. One might be They might look the same, so here's what you see. You see two stars on the night sky, you go out and look, they look about the same brightness. It doesn't tell you anything about those two stars unless you know more about them. One might be a really bright star, incredibly bright star, hundreds, thousands, millions of times brighter than the sun, but very far away. The other could be a faint star, You know, as some of those stars were in the just we looked at the nearest stars to the Sun, but just happens to be very close. And in fact, many of those stars on that nearest star chart that we looked at would not be visible if you were much further away. So you wouldn't even be able to see them. So what you're seeing is two stars of the same brightness, but it doesn't tell you whether it's a real bright star or a real faint star. You need other information. You need to know, know about the distances. And distances are one of the hardest things. Distances and masses are two of the hardest things to determine in astronomy. They're two of the hardest things to be able to calculate, even to stars. I mean, even to the nearest stars, it's not that easy to determine the exact distance to them. We can get a pretty good estimate, but not an exact distance. So what you see is not always what you get if you're looking at the stars. Just because a star is bright doesn't mean it's a really a bright star. It just might happen to be really, really close, like the sun. If the sun were put at the distance of Orion, you wouldn't see it. Telescope, yeah, but you wouldn't see it to the naked eye. So compared to a lot of the bright stars that you see in the sky, our sun's nothing. Our sun's invisible. We're not that special, are we? But then compared to most of the stars in the galaxy, the sun's a lot bigger than them. So they sort of say the sun's an average star. It depends on what you're looking at. Compared to the typical star in our galaxy, most of the stars are little tiny red stars. Red dwarf stars, and they're, you know, sun's a lot bigger than them, so we're special now. But if you compare them to the bright stars you see in the sky every night, most of those make our sun. You know, some of those stars are so big that you know you put them in the center of the solar system, and we'd be inside the star. Here, we'd be trying to orbit inside the star, so there wouldn't be any. You know, they'd be bigger than the Earth's orbit or Mars's orbit. Some of them are gigantic. All right, magnitudes. Everyone loves this one. This is the scale that we use to determine, to use for brightnesses. So, you'll you'll hear about it on, you know, the faintest star seen by Hubble was a 30th magnitude or 30.2 magnitude star. Well, this came came about a long time ago and astronomers, you know, have been using it for actually thousands of years. But, and it's never been changed and they're not going to change it now. But essentially, what they did was, and again, this was several thousands of years ago, stars were grouped into six classes. So someone looked at the sky and just started counting stars, I'm talking a couple thousand years ago. And he went and he counted stars, and he just put them into six groups. The brightest stars were stars of the first magnitude. They were the brightest stars. They were the first. Then the next group would have been the stars of the second magnitude, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. The faintest stars you could see with the naked eye would have been sixth magnitude. So all the stars were divided up into six groups. Now you start to see what that, what that does. Now all of a sudden when you're looking numerically, the bigger the number, the fainter the star. So when you're looking for a really faint object, it's got the biggest number. So something like, you know, the faintest stars you can see with the naked eye are stars of magnitude 6, whereas brighter stars are first magnitude, or less, or zero magnitude. So you can actually go, we've extended beyond this now. But it's related to how we see things. And now we've expanded it that we can go down and it's like 30th magnitude is Hubble Space Telescope. Can get down to 30th, maybe 31st magnitude, depending. So in between there are other, what other telescopes can reach. And you can actually go brighter. You know, the sun, the brightest object, is a minus 26.7. Is that what they give us? Yeah. varies sometimes in the last digit. Minus 26.7 is the sun. So when you're looking at magnitudes, the larger larger magnitude means a fainter star. So easy to confuse you that way when you're comparing. Okay, which is brighter, the second magnitude star or this fourth magnitude star? Well, you're used to. You know, thinking of temperatures, something at 2,000 degrees or 4,000 degrees, you know which one is bigger. In magnitudes, when you use magnitudes, it all goes backwards. It's also a logarithmic scale. Logarithms are gone, right? Well, astronomers are still like the only people who use logarithms anymore. We don't need to worry. You don't need to worry about the calculations for them right now. But I forgot your homework, darn. I'll have to get you that. I completely forgot your homework. Logarithmic scale just means that instead of, you know, normally when you have a star that's 1,000 degrees and a star that's 3,000 degrees, you know it's three times hotter. Right? But when you have a star that's first magnitude and a star that's sixth magnitude, it's not six times brighter. It's 100 times brighter. I know, just to confuse you, right? So five magnitudes means 100 times in brightness. So that means the brightest stars in the sky that you see that are first magnitude are 100 times brighter than those sixth magnitude stars. So confusing, I know. There's not I don't you don't need to do too much with it. I think I have you do one calculation on one of the homeworks, not on the exams. I do keep I keep those off. But I do want you to have some idea. First of all, I do want you to know this. Larger magnitudes means fainter stars. I'm good at giving questions like that. You know, this star and this star, which is brighter. Yeah. What's the base of the log scale? The base it's a, it's a base ten log on it. Yeah. It's a regular base ten log. I mean it's not it comes out to two and a half times for each. Scale, it comes out to, uh, I don't know, 2.512 times, about, don't worry about 2.5. Each magnitude is a factor of 2.5 times brighter. So that's worth knowing too. I mean, the 5 is 100, and the 2.5 is each magnitude, so each magnitude difference. So if you're going from first magnitude to second magnitude, it's about 2.5 times different. But it's all related. Why it's done this way is because it was all done with the naked eye, and that's how your eye sees things. So it's not like some instrument nowadays you could go make an instrument that just detects the light and gives you a much more reasonable scale that wouldn't confuse everybody. This is the basics of what I want you to know to know about it. I will give you there is an equation for it, I will give you that to look at, but there's not a lot of you're not going into a lot of detail, and I just want you to have have seen it. So unless you want to go into more detail. Okay, I didn't think so. But you'll have it there for those who do want to look at it a little bit more, you can. So, two big things that confuse it. First of all, again, it's logarithmic, meaning that changing the magnitudes does not change, it doesn't change directly. So, something that is first magnitude versus tenth magnitude, no, it's not ten times brighter. It's 2.5 times 2.5 times 2.5 times. Times brighter, how many 2.5s you gotta get between them. And it's inverted. That's the big one. Make sure you know that one, because I know I'll give you a question like that on the test. You know, I'll ask you something about two stars that says and which one is which one is brighter, which star is brighter. Okay. And this the scale on the left is just giving you the range. So our initial one was from the naked eye limit to about here. That was about the initial scale. We've now gone to much fainter stars. Barnard's star wasn't visible to the naked eye. You can't see that star with the naked eye. You need at least a pair of binoculars to be able to see it, or a nice small small telescope. As you get to bigger and bigger telescopes, Hubble telescope, you can get down to like 30th magnitude. So very faint objects. And then added in are things that weren't included, because it was only cataloging stars, where things like the sun and the moon and Venus would be, now that it's all been quantified a little bit better than the original scale. So you can actually have negative magnitudes and those are the extremely brightest objects in the sky. Temperatures. So these are some of the things we can determine. We're just going through the different things we can determine about the stars. The color of a star tells us its temperature. So. If you look at Orion, you know, you get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, and you go out, right, well, not this morning, but most mornings recently, it's been pretty good. I've seen Orion a few times. You go out and see Orion, and you can see the reddish star in the upper left and a bluish star in the lower right. Betelgeuse in the upper left is a very red star. Rigel in the lower right is a very blue star, and you you can see that if you look at them. If you try and go out and look at them, you can actually see that. If you don't want to get up at 5 in the morning, wait till, you know, January and go out. Then you can see them in the evening. Then they'll be out in the evening. But it's telling us about the temperature. So the redder stars that you see in the picture here are the coolest. The the more red to them, the cooler the stars are. So you see a few that are quite red, a few that look a little orange, and you see some that look a bluish tinge to them. And that is telling you the temperature of the stars. Now there's easier ways to, cal- there's ways to actually calculate that and figure out what the temperature of the star is. But just looking at them gives you an idea and you can compare them and tell me whether a star is hotter or cooler than another. Just by looking at the temperature. So I give you a thing like this, you could sit there and pick out, you know, you could pick out five bright stars, five faint st- five, five bright stars, five hot stars, five cooler stars. And it's just by looking at the color. So by looking at that was one way to actually determine the temperatures. Now how do we get that? Here's some examples. And we look at the table here. You have something like the Sun which is sort of a yellowish. About 6,000 degrees. If you go up to hotter and hotter stars, things like Vega and Sirius and Rigel, you can go up to 10,000 degrees. Vega looks a whitish star. Rigel, we just mentioned, looks e- bluer. And Delta Orionis, even more, Mintaka, is 30,000 degrees. It's an incredibly hot star. 30,000, that's five times hotter than the sun. Now, what astronomers do to determine these temperatures, well, you could. You could take, remember, way back we did the black body spectrum, right? Way, way back you had some sort of curve that told you how the light was going to, where it was going to peak. So astronomers could measure that and look for the peak to determine the temperature. That's one way to do it, but it's not what's normally done. Because the way the curve work, because of the way the properties of the curve, it's different, has a different slope on this side than it has on this side, all you have to do is measure two different wavelength bands. And so what astronomers do is they measure it in the blue. That's the B B there. For blue light, so they'll measure it through a band that just lets in the blue light. And they'll measure it through another filter that just lets in the yellowish light, which is not called the Y band for yellow, it's called the V for visual. And they look at those two, and you can compare. If you have a star that is equally bright, in the blue filter and the visual filter, then it's about 10,000 degrees. You can get the temperature. So each, each comparison of these two magnitudes, you measure a magnitude in blue and a magnitude in visual, then you can go ahead and figure out the temperature very easily. And you've only got to measure two things instead of looking for that peak. And you can do that. That'll work for any star. If you have a cool star here, again, you're going to get much more light coming through the visual filter than you are through the blue. So much more light through the visual, so it's going to look brighter in the visible than it is in the blue. And that's going to look like a reddish star, because the peak is way off here in the red. This star is going to look blue, and you're getting more light coming through in the blue part of the spectrum than in the visual part. Again, visual is just yellow, but we call it, it's just, visual is where your vision peaks, which is where the sun peaks. So all we need to do is use two wavelengths. And there are others. There's actually an uh, ultraviolet one. And you can use red and infrared to scatter it out. And there's a couple different ones that you can actually measure to get better details. But that's all you need. All you need is two to get the temperature. So it's a lot easier to do that, because astronomers can take a picture of the sky in one filter, take a picture of a section of the sky in the other filter, and just compare all those magnitudes. And you can determine the temperature of hundreds or hundreds of stars all at once. But what tells us more about the temperatures is the spectra. So we can actually learn even more. There are easier way, more ways to learn about the stars. And that's looking at the spectra. Now remember the spectra, right? We looked at all those before. That's what I say. We're getting, we're getting on to the actual material now. So we're referring back to what we've talked about. But they tell us a lot more. Now we looked at the spectra. I remember I showed you that big, giant, yucky spectrum of the sun that took up the whole slide. And you could tell what it, you could tell what it was made of. Well, looking at all the stars in general, there are actually seven different types of spectra, general types. There's actually slightly more than this, but they're rearranged by temperature. There are they're given the pattern O B A F G K M. That's exactly the sequence you would pick out if you were going to name stars by letters, right? If you were going to classify them by letters, wouldn't you start with O, B, A, F? I mean, that's just what you'd pick out, right? Or would you go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? Most likely. Actually, they did. They did go A, B, C, D, E, F, G when they first classified them. But they didn't understand what it meant. All they did when they were doing this hundreds of years, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, was they classified the spectra by how they looked, and they made the group. And here's the A stars. They have the nice cleanest spectra. They're the smoothest. And then as they got more and more lines, and there were B, C, D, E, F, G, H, and so on, down to M. Once we learned what was happening physically, We found out that there was actually a temperature sequence. The numbers had to get rearranged. But of course, you didn't re-change the names. You didn't make, well, the stars that were O stars yesterday are now A stars, and you didn't change the names. You kept the classifications that had already been made for all the catalogs that had been done. But when you rearrange them in terms of temperature, your very hot stars are over here with the O stars, and your very cool stars are over here. Now we actually do divide it more. There actually are some that go on beyond M now. That's the primary class of them. There are, some, there are some stars that go down here in the R's and N's and S's and T's and W's and all sorts of other ones that actually go beyond that. But the basic eight or seven of the spectra, I should say, basic seven classes are the O, B, A, F, G, K, and M. But they're telling us the temperatures of the stars. When we classify a star just looking at its spectrum So I said we looked at that spectrum of the sun, you know, and a trained astronomer can look at that and tell you the temperature of the can tell you the temperature of the star. So here's the seven types when you look at them, and they look quite different. I mean, you can tell the difference. If I give you a star that's O and B, you can tell. I mean, B and M, you can tell the difference. They look quite different. So this is how they were first classified. You took a whole bunch of spectra and you put this group into one group, and this into another, and this into an and again as I said you used to have A through M but they got rearranged some of the classes got combined and that's why you don't have you know there is no class C there is no class D or E or H you know some of them are missing and some of them got switched around in terms of temperature sequ- t- in terms of making the temperature sequence which is why O is O and B come before A but this is the depth of the spectral types and you'll see, what you see in them is different lines depending on the specific stars that you're looking at. You see hydrogen lines pretty much solidly throughout. If you can follow them down there, there's where's hydrogen, right there. You can see hydrogen throughout. Hydrogen's hydrogen's present in every star. Ninety percent of the universe is hydrogen. But it's stronger in some than it is in others. But you see helium you only see helium in these, star, in these very, very hot stars. You don't see strong helium lines in the others. They're there. You can see helium in the sun. It's where, the sun, where helium was discovered, It's in the sun. But you don't see very strong lines. The lines are much weaker. When you look for the strongest lines, they vary. And here you start to get as cooler stars. You start to see things like calcium, magnesium, sodium, oxygen. And when you get down to the very coolest stars, you actually stars that are cool enough that molecules have formed. So you can actually form molecules in there, and they give you very complicated spectra, as we, ta- we talked about before, and you start to get these M stars get very, very messy spectra. Now, these are nice and easy, right? You can see the lines and count the few hydrogen and helium lines because everything else is gone. Everything else is not emitting light in those stars. It's too hot. And they get more and more complicated as you get down towards something like the sun or beyond. Now did I? Yeah. So what you see in each one, for example, in an O star, you see ionized helium. That's helium where you've taken an electron away. That's very You don't, you don't see ionized helium in the sun. You need a lot of energy to see that line because, remember the electrons jumping around the energy levels we talked about, right? So energy levels jumping around, but in this case, you're not only jumping that electron, but one electron's been pulled off and gone. So that helium is running around with just one electron. So it's only half-dressed. It's got one electron instead of two. So it takes a lot of energy to have pulled that, uh, that helium electron off of it. So only in the very hottest stars do you see ionized helium. You'll see that even in the 20,000 degree stars, which are pretty hot, ionized helium isn't mentioned. You've got neutral helium. Neutral helium. But helium disappears very, very quickly and is not very visible in the coolest stars. Just because it takes a lot of energy to excite that, those electrons of helium. Helium is a very tightly bound atom. It's one of the noble gases. It doesn't want to combine with anything. Its electrons are very tightly held. So it takes a lot of energy to get them up into that first excited energy level. As you go down, you start to see hydrogen gets very, very strong. Hydrogen peaks in the A stars. So what we were looking at when we first classified them, the hydrogen lines, because that's what's strong there. And hydrogen gets fainter on this side and fainter on this side. That doesn't mean hydrogen. There's more hydrogen or less hydrogen. That's not telling you how much of something is in the star. It's telling you the temperature. What happens when hydrogen gets very, very hot? What's going to happen to the electron? Gets ripped off. If if there's no electron on that hydrogen atom, there's nothing to jump the energy levels, and you're not going to see the line. So you don't see the hydrogen line here. Because all the hydrogen's been ionized, and if you ionize hydrogen, there's no electron, so there's no lines. It's gone. So when you get to really hot stars, you don't see very high very much hydrogen. It's all been stripped, all the electrons have been stripped off of it. When you get to cooler stars, hydrogen again gets very faint, not because the hydrogen's ionized, but because you simply don't have enough energy to get it to that first excite. You don't have enough energy to get it up to the excited energy levels. They're too, those stars are too cool. They're not hot enough to heat, up, to heat up the hydrogen to do that. So they don't heat it up enough and the hydrogen, a little bit of it gets excited, but not, not much of it. So you don't see the hydrogen lines. The same thing that happens with each of these. They'll each have a peak. So looking at the elements and what elements you see in the star tells you primarily about the temperature. It doesn't tell you what it's made up of. And if we go back to that previous one. Yeah, This doesn't mean that this star has, you know, these stars have lots of iron in these stars, and these stars have oxygen, and these stars are made up of all molecules, and these ones have lots of helium. They're not. All these stars are made of the same stuff. They're all made of 90%, if you count the number of atoms, 90% hydrogen and 10% helium, and the rounding error is everything else. The temperatures just tell you what you're able to see. So which ones happen to be excited to the right 20,000 degrees, it happens to excite carbon a certain amount. 10,000 degrees excites calcium really well. Six, 7,000 degrees like the sun is real good at sodium. So you, see strong, so you can see strong sodium and calcium lines in stars like the sun. It's telling you more what the stars are, made, or what the temperatures are, than it is what they're made up of. So it doesn't mean that you know, those really hot stars are mostly helium. They're not they're still mostly hydrogen. You just can't see the hydrogen spectrally. Now, if you know that and you figure out the temperatures, then you can use the lines to work backwards and figure out how much of everything there is. But you have to take the temperature into account first. Sizes of stars. How big is a star? Well, we can see the sun. We can see the disk of the sun. On a couple of other occasions, here's Betelgeuse, you can actually see it as a disk. Not very well through a big, It's a very. Betelgeuse is an incredibly big star, and it's relatively close to us. So it's one you can actually image as a, it still doesn't look like much, right? But you can actually get contours, you can actually get a specific size to it. Normally when you look, at this, look through a telescope at a star, all you're seeing are points. A very few stars that you can actually determine the size, that you can actually directly determine the size of. Usually you have to use an indirect method to determine how big a star is. For the other stars, you've got to calculate it. You can't just look at it and figure it out. You know the luminosity, the temperature. Remember, temperature is really easy to determine. We were just looking at that. That was nice and easy. We could get the temperature, you get the color of the stars, and you could measure a couple magnitudes, and I can determine a temperature. Luminosity, we can get pretty well. We can determine how bright things are. So in order to compare the sizes, you have some of these stars depending on the size of the stars. You have some very big stars, giant stars, which might be 10 to 100 times the sun's. These aren't the extreme cases. These are the typical giant stars. But they might be 10 or 100 times the size of the sun. So they're a giant star. They're not all that big compared to some of the stars. A dwarf star is a star which is like the sun. The sun is actually classified as a dwarf star. So, But it's about the radius equal to or anything less than the sun is certainly a dwarf star. Giant stars are bigger, 10 to 100 times bigger. Supergiant stars have radii more than 100 times the suns. But that can go from hundreds to thousands, probably to millions. I mean, you can have things that are incredibly big compared to the sun. I mean, a, a star like a giant star in the solar system, well, it would stretch out a little bit further, but you know it wouldn't swallow up the planets. Supergiant stars, some of the biggest ones, would actually have incorporated Mercury, Venus, Earth, and even out to Mars for some of the largest. Just the star would be that big. So maybe. Jupiter would be a lot smaller. You could have life on the moons of Jupiter or Saturn further out. But everything in here, you know, you can't orbit inside a star. It wouldn't last. You'd be very quickly, first of all, you'd be burned up anyway just from the heat of being inside it. But you would not be able to survive just as an orbit, it would be consumed. So, just in terms of temperature. Okay. So, here's just some examples of some of them Antares is the bright star in Scorpius, which you can see, as long as you're not, don't live north of Harrisburg, because it's in the southern sky in the summer, and we're pretty much past its season now. But it's a real bright star in the constellation of Scorpius, which is way off to the south, like in July and August. You can see it very well. bright red star. It's about 500 times the radius of the Sun. Well, this is the Earth's orbit. That's Mars's orbit. So it's well out into the asteroid belt. If you took that star and plopped it here, we'd be well in some, we're not just barely inside it, we're well inside it. We're way down here. And there's Mars. Okay, Jupiter would still be out a ways. Jupiter would be about a thousand. Jupiter would be about this distance again out. So Jupiter wouldn't be all that far away from this, this star. That's a very, very big star. There are some tremendously big stars. You know. There's the sun for comparison. Big, big difference in size. A very big difference in size. And then going down even smaller, you can see some of these stars. Barnard's star, the one that we looked at earlier, about 0.2. So Barnard's star, now even large the sun so you could actually see it, is about that big. Jupiter is similar in size. And there's a couple teeny. This one's really tiny. Proxima Centauri, the nearest star, very tiny. Serious B, we'll come back to that kind later in the class and talk about those. But sizes can vary, vary, can vary, vary much, right? Very, very much. Vary with an A, vary with an E. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop there and we will continue. And we should be able to finish up chapter 10 on Friday before the lab. So, and then don't forget, uh, if you can get it in for me by Friday, that's great. But I didn't want to give you just two days. That seemed like not quite enough because for all I know, you've got an exam to study for today or tomorrow. So. But certainly I need I need those exams back by Monday.